0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Podcast. I'm your host, Vago Meradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining us today is my good friend Byron Callan of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners. Byron, always a pleasure having you on. Thanks for joining us. An honor to be here, Vago. Uh, An absolute pleasure. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. FinContieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. Uh, Byron, as usual, uh, two great recent notes. One on the five things to watch in the last six months uh, of the year. One of your hallmarks right in the summer doldrums when people are wondering what they should be thinking about as they hit their summer reading list. Uh, and I want to talk to you a little bit about operational pet, Operation Pedestal. You mentioned uh, it uh, on uh, the Friday podcast when, when you joined us, uh, as well as US and EU uh, supply and industrial base issues, uh, supply chain and industrial base issues, which you've written about. Let's start with the five things uh, to watch and, and maybe the five things to watch minus. Uh, the House Appropriations Committee's uh, defense subcommittee, right? Because we'll talk about that in a little bit greater depth. But but what should people be paying attention to? Uh, you know, it's really
1: year. just kind of you're right. You know, you're gonna hit a little bit of a lull here with the uh, July 4th holiday. And it's at least for the analyst community, uh, you know, there's kind of the calm before the earnings uh, reporting season storm. Um, and it's early summer. So you know, it's not just stuff to think about. It's what should you really be doing? Work on uh, not not sitting under the hammock, uh, you know, looking at the leaves. Um, so there are five things that I kind of pulled out, and these are more contractor focus. I, I will get around to doing kind of the budget, bigger defense picture, uh, probably next week or the week after, but. Um, in no particular order of importance, I think one issue is whether or not the Lockheed Martin Aerojet Rocketdyne deal is going to get approved. Uh, you know, Lockheed Martin has talked about this getting done by uh, the fourth quarter of 2021. We'll see. You know, you're going to have new civilian leadership in, in DOD uh, and the rest of the Biden administration. You know, are, are they going to have a different view on consolidation by large primes and
0: vertical integration strategies? Uh, that, that's one issue. And and speaking of new talent, right at the Federal Trade Commission is somebody who's very very hawkish uh, on the need for more competition and and reining in big business, right? Which could be uh, problematic from the standpoint of getting a deal through.
1: Right, and and you know Raytheon has weighed in on this, like, like opposing the the deal. So you know the timing is not particularly auspicious for this to to be approved. We'll see. I mean, you know Lockheed Martin. Certainly, it has mustered some arguments for this, and it, it has been approved by Aerojet Rocketdyne shareholders. But you know, where this mid mid tier of the defense sector has really been hollowed out by consolidation, um, it's it just it's something that to think about, and I think it, it, it could be an issue for the second half of the 2021. Because it's also what it says about okay, what are the other moves that other contractors could make? You know, are you really looking at a different uh, merger and acquisition environment. And and I think this is going to be an important signal for the Biden administration to send.
0: Um, and I, I should have said her name right. Lena, uh, Lena Khan. Yeah. Um,
1: you know, defense, federal services, stocks have, have lagged uh, the S&P 500. You know, I think they've been showing pretty decent performance, but they just haven't been doing as well. And I think that's another question. This is, again, more focused on analysts, but, you know, what could get them performing better in the second half of the year, even to match some of the performance you've seen in the the largest uh, defense contractors in the U.S. Um, A third issue, and this kind of bleeds into early 2022, but what are the largest defense contractors going to be saying about their 2022 sales prospects? Um, Sometimes Lockheed Martin provides hints in the July uh, earnings call that it does, but you know, consensus is kind of ah. These companies are going to grow at four or five percent. Um, if that's validated, that's fine. If if it's not validated, and maybe it's a little bit less or a little bit more, you know. But I think there's some open questions here. Looking at how some of the congressional marks are playing through, you know, I might err on the low side of some of those numbers uh, if if I were actually doing detailed models. Um, European defense. You know, it's kind of interesting there. I think the, the key issues are really going to be uh, the the election in Germany in September and kind of what direction, I don't think it's going to be abrupt change, but it is going to be a, a change to kind of a post merkel Germany. And what will that say more broadly about the prospects for defense spending in Europe? Um, I think there have been some positive signs. I think, you know, just kind of this broader recognition about what Russia has been up to, and their military modernization and capabilities has, has weighed on positively for Euro- European defense prospects. Finally, Vago, uh, you know, we talked about this in some of the other calls, but I think this whole question about, you know, will defense contractors start to see labor uh, inflation pressure, and then there are going to be some other internal DOD policy changes that I think are important away, a way too.
0: Um, and what do you think? Uh, some of the policy pressures are going to be?
1: Well, I'm very curious when you, you know, we see what uh, acquisition and sustainment might do with software acquisition. You know, you've got this new category that's been broken out in RDT&E to try and put some focus on that. Uh, There are reviews going underway about contractor uh, uh, profitability. And um, there's kind of this question left hanging about progress payment rates. You know, they they were bumped up uh, during the pandemic to flow down to subcontractors, you know, as, as the pandemic abates and companies are back buying stock, you know, do they really need to see this elevated level of progress payments going forward? So, you know, some of this, I think it's kind of been put in advance because of the, you just, you're waiting for senior DOD officials to be confirmed. Um, and, you know, that the holds that have been placed on both uh, Susanna Bloom's Uh, nomination and and Frank Kennel's nomination, you know, may push these issues out a little bit further. But by the second half of the year, I think you'll have pretty much an entire Biden administration team up and running at the the Pentagon.
0: And uh, Mike Brown also is in suspended animation a little bit as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, yes, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Um, You know, folks that we would have regarded in almost any uh, administration to be ideal candidates for the jobs uh, they're going to be um, uh, taking on. L- let me go to uh, the House Appropriations Committee's uh, Defense Subcommittee uh, has uh, been uh, in, in the midst of uh, markups. What are some of the things you're taking away from that no, process? No, no real surprise, I'd
1: say. You know, just dealing with the bill text and the summary that came out today, uh, today uh, June 29th. I mean, no, no surprise. They found the money for an additional DDG 51, that was a general dynamics boat, um, a little bit of a surprise to me, there was more money, uh, you know, for FA teams, not a surprise, but they found more money for, uh, for a couple more C-130Js. Um, so, you know, there's always been kind of a platform bias uh, when, when the appropriators get to these bills. But I think, you know, the, the much more interesting questions are like, okay, so where do you make some of those offsetting cuts? Um, you know, and uh, these are small items in, in many cases, but, you know, the PAC-D added more than a billion dollars to uh, procurement relative to the administration's request, but also cut rdt and e by a billion dollars relative to the request. So we, we just need to really kind of go through the, the bill report and see where, uh, where maybe some of the damage was done, uh, particularly for some of these smaller programs.
0: Do, do you think that I, I know we've uh, talked a little bit about this, I, I've asked this question so many times that you almost begin to forget um, <laughs> the answers uh, to them, although the answer seems to be pretty consistent, that we're unlikely to make choices that ultimately, when we move, we move in incremental fashion, um, you know eventually things do go out of production, but it takes an awful long time until we, we get there. Um, this administration has been talking about making trade-offs and tough choices. The last administration talked about it, right? And like every administration, they leave the tough choices for their last, you know, it's always next year that uh, uh, we we've,
1: talk, we've talked about this offline. And I, I'm also, you know, FCO West is going on. And this morning, there was a really interesting panel on is the Navy ready for unmanned aircraft and, and ships? Uh, one of the people who spoke, um, I thought just, you know, he's right in the midst of, of getting these things out. And, you know, there was an integrated, uh, unmanned integrated uh, battle problem that was recently run in San Diego. And, uh, you know, his advice was, you just gotta get these things in the water and and experiment with them. And, and that's what you're really gonna see, you know, where the problems are, where can you, you get going on this? There was another private company um, that had been uh, a company called Martak, that had been talking about the fact they've been participating in Navy exercises, I believe since 2016, Uh, they (laughs) take a look at their website. I mean, this is a really fascinating product. Um, But they said one of their biggest problems is, you know, it's our money when we come to participate in these exercises and, you know, fortunately we can find some of the funding for it. but. Um, and again, he reiterated the HR problem about requirements and requirements really not catching up with this stuff. So you're not talking about big dollar amounts in the budget, um, you know, certainly relative to the largest platform programs, but we are in a period where, you know, the faster I think we validate whether some of this stuff is, is real or not, whether, whether it can be used, um, operationally, and um, give the commanders and and enlisted personnel the confidence that they are going to need to start playing with this stuff. I just think I just think we really need to get on with that, and uh, and then figure out it's is this really going to work, or is this another technology, you know, white fluffy cloud that we're chasing that uh, you know maybe it'll work in some ways, but there are a lot of ways it's it's just not feasible, and we can move on to to the next thing, but. You know, winnowing down that uncertainty, I think it'd just be absolutely an imperative for Congress to focus on that today.
0: Um, I, I, I would agree with you, right? I mean, I think part of the challenge from a lawmaker's perspective is that the services tend to be a little bit all over the map on this. And when thoughtful members uh, like Elaine Luria of uh, the Norfolk area, the Democrat from the Tidewater, uh, of Virginia, uh, former naval officer and Naval Academy graduate, right, asks very, very tough questions about, hey, look, you know, um, our, our processes are really tough when you're launching weapons from a man ship. Yeah. How do you do this unmanned over the horizon at a distance from an unmanned platform that has a couple of hundred missile tubes on it? You know, it's, it's some r- r- relevant questions. You know, are you picking up the intellectual consistency, right? I mean, this is a challenge for JADC2 where members of Congress uh, question where uh, the Air Force and the services are going with this. Um, it's an issue on NGAD, the next generation air dominance capability, where um, the, the services story has changed a little bit regarding, you know, now it's firmly a family of, of, of systems. That is potentially a good thing because there are different ways of sort of getting there. Do, do you think the services themselves are being intellectually rigorous, consistent, and creative enough, because lawmakers ultimately respond to what they know, and when the story changes every year, they tend to change a little more slowly than the story changes sometimes.
1: I think to a degree that's true, but I think that's also just the inherent nature of anything that is new. I mean, you 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 know, if someone had tossed me an iPhone. 10 years ago or said, hey, we're going to have this, you know, you're effectively a personal computer and a, t- a camera, you know, how many of us would have really figured out all the different ways that we now use these things? So I, I think it's just, it's just part of innovation. And, um, you know, they're, they're and I, I just keep coming back to this. I think the dollar amounts, you know, if you look at unmanned surface or unmanned undersea, um, you're not talking about big dollar amounts, but I think you are at, at the margin, you know, you need to get on with that. Um, and our adversaries are clearly doing some of this stuff. I mean, when you see some of the the capabilities, for example, that have washed up in the uh, in Indonesian territorial waters, it's not like we're the only country in the world that's kind of grappling through some of this stuff. So if someone gets there before we do, and makes that decision, you know, they reach that fork in the road and they've really proven or, or disproven some of this stuff, we're going to be in a disadvantage.
0: Um, speaking of uh, Indonesia that takes us to China, uh, last week you wrote a great note about um, B-21, right? Uh, it's always uh, great when the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Adam Smith, has good things to say about an important program, and he said it's on time and uh, cost, which, which is something uh, that was certainly music to Northrop and the U.S. Air Force's uh, ears. Uh, but you also wrote about the Chinese uh, Navy uh, in that note, uh, about its size and composition, and you refined uh, that view, right? I mean, everybody is focused on how many ships the Chinese have, and now they're bigger than the US Navy. And, you know, it's the pacing threat, and everybody's worked up about it. But you you put an interesting caveat out uh, on, well, in Monday's that's, note.
1: That's it, Fago. And I think this is all kind of an interrelated conversation, you know, and it, it's come up both from senators and representatives during hearings, and frankly, from Navy leadership, you know, you hear this, well, now China has a bigger fleet than we do. And it's like, so what? I mean, if you, look at, if you look at, it depends how you measure that fleet, um, you know, the, the battle force definition, Then this is what I'm not quite clear on, because if you look at battle force ships, we, we have still a slight advantage, although I guess if the, you know, two or three years from now, that could change. But clearly, if you add the Type um, 022 uh, missile patrol craft that the PLNA deploys, Um, They have a larger fleet than we do. And then if you start looking at the composition of the Chinese fleet, you know, it's really kind of bottom end loaded with, with a lot of Corvettes that are much smaller than our littoral combat ships. And they've got a diesel submarine force that I don't think any U S submariner would be willing to change, trade their, their uh, Los Angeles or Virginia class boats for some of the diesel boats that the Chinese operate. So it's, and I'll say one other thing, cause this also came up during FCO West. You know, these beam counts I think are very deceptive. You've got to start thinking about this or, or approaching it from a holistic standpoint. You've got to think about air power. Um, you've got to think about land-based naval strike on both sides. Um, so it's not just a ship by ship comparison and saying, oh, the Chinese have a bigger fleet than we do. Well, what does that tell you? And And the other point that it ignores is I, I, it's inconceivable to me that we would enter a conflict with China without at least uh, Japan and, and Australia um, in tow. And if it's over Taiwan, well, then you got to throw in the Taiwanese Navy on this. So, so it's a very um, it. It's not something that I think will gain a lot of traction, uh, or maybe it will. I don't know. But I, I it. it Making these assertions that China has a larger fleet, it's like, well, what does that really tell you? So, what what's what should be the direction of the U.S. Navy? Just build more smaller ships. Maybe we should be building smaller ships that are missile patrol craft and corvette-sized vessels, and we could we could have a larger navy than, than the than the Chinese, but. Um, I don't think that's where leadership wants to go
0: you should also mention south korea which has a a first uh uh, rank uh navy as well uh and would likely get pulled pulled into this even if some folks in seoul would rather avoid it uh you know it reminds me about the debate that the u.s navy was having in the 1930s about the submarine force right you had on on the one hand uh folks who were arguing for more smaller coastal submarines were and then you had guys like nimitz arguing, hey, look, let's do fleet boats, ships that you know, have 10,000 miles of range, have trans-Pacific capability, a big weapon loadout, let's air condition them, let's, put, you know, let's keep put an ice cream maker on it so that they can do uh, long range patrols. And then we, you know, and everybody has a tendency of forgetting the best submarines in World War II and the most effective ones were American fleet boats that were able to range, had radar, had, you know, good sonar. Um, once we got the torpedo problem solved um you know in the hands of highly aggressive commanders, boy, wasn't it good that we had those fifteen hundred ton three hundred foot long submarines as opposed to things that were smaller and not as capable
1: right and I think if you look at the the way that British defeated the United States in the eighteen in the war of eighteen twelve it's because the u s made a big bet on a lot of small little kind of gunboats. I think there's one of them in the smithsonian uh i got dredged up out of Lake Champlain, but uh, no, you know, that that's always been a perennial side and, um, you know, it, it is intriguing, you know, if you, again, I hear different views on this, but, um, you know, I think a lot of people, if you ask, would rather be in a larger ship in combat operations than a smaller one. Yeah, the larger ships can be bigger targets, but boy, they can take some punishment that the little guys just can't deal with.
0: Uh, Let me take you to uh, supply chain issues. Right. A lot of focus, obviously, a congressional um, group looking at it, Mike Gallagher uh, and Alyssa Slotkin, uh, both looking at supply chain issues. The White House has been looking at it. Uh, George Mason University, uh, our mutual friend, Dr. Jerry McGinn and his team there. Uh, have been uh, looking at it. Bill Greenwald has, has joined us a couple of times as well. Um, talk to us a little bit about some of the events uh, around town. Uh, EU is no longer a dirty word. I, I say this as the annual uh, EU uh, Defense Conference in uh, Washington is, is ongoing, something in partnership with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, we hope Heather Connolly, uh, who, who spearheads the Europe program over uh, at CSIS, is going to be able to join us on Thursday to discuss. But talk to us a little bit about. US-EU supply chain and industrial base uh, issues and how do we need to think about this beyond challenges over chicken? <laughs> yeah, Sorry, well, I remember I the last say, line maybe, of that maybe, note.
1: It, maybe sticking with a the maritime theme on this, I, I thought some of these events recently, had kind of poured oil on uh, troubled waters. It had really been stirred up with, with the risk or concerns, frankly, a lot of Europeans felt about buy America. And, you know, I, I think what kind of came out of some of these conferences and, uh, and presentations was uh, there's going to be an attempt, I think, to really work with the EU to address some of these problems in a common frame. So. When we start thinking about you know the u.s trying to reshore some of its uh, its semiconductor manufacturing capability well the EU wants to do the same thing so let's let's not make sure that we're, we're all doing exactly the same reshoring of uh you know 16 nanometer logic chips you you've got to start dividing and, and divvying that up and figuring out you know we are going to be working with our allies it's been a, a critical and core theme that the biden administration is talking about and I think, the fact that they're now talking more about kind of coordination and cooperation here is a good thing. Um, and it, it's gonna take some time, you know, it, the chicken example was, uh, you know, came from the CSIS event on Monday. Uh, look, you know, the question of standards, uh, you know, for, for basic things like food, probably gonna be hard to bridge, but if you can, you can deal with some of these problems on a go forward basis and coordinate, you know where do you want to have, uh, you know, mutually assured supply chains um, in in critical elements, well, semiconductors, rare earth. But I think um, Representative Gallagher, during the uh, the Friday event that George Mason held, you know, he was really shocked by. Some of the dependencies the United States has on low-tech um, products that are that are very important for our defense capability. So energetics, I know personally brass is another one that I think people would really be shocked by. So um addressing these in kind of, you know, not just a bumper sticker, hey, it's got to be built in the United States. And, and if it's imported from the UK or France or Sweden, you know, forget it. Um I'm. I thought it was. It was actually a pretty good set of events from that standpoint. Now, they're still going to get this all done, and you know, this is still a, a process that's going to play out over months. But um, the the House has task force report should be released in July, and I think that'll be helpful because some of that is also going to be ma- making its way into the National Defense Authorization Act. Do
0: Do you think that the president's sweeping declaration of the importance of Buy American and onshoring and all of that is going to eventually get contorted, right? I mean, the good news is everybody from the National Security Advisor on down the line is talking about the importance of engaging with allies and partners, working more closely with the EU. Again, EU, not a dirty word anymore in Washington, even though I have to say that even during the last administration, uh, Ellen Lord and Mike Griffin and and the senior leadership of the Pentagon was engaging with our allies and partners, including with the European Union, yep. and, and working on, on deepening relations. Could this message end up becoming twisted? Um, because there are going to be a lot of companies that are going to make a lot of hay when they go up against a better overseas product or overseas design product that even is made in the United States and may say, well, you know, we're the all American, uh, guys and, and we're the gals and we're we're the ones who should have that. I mean, do you, do you, are you worried at all about how something,
1: I you know, (laughs) ask people in the DOD about, you know, new balance footwear uh, and running shoes, uh, you Know that that may have been one example of that where um I, I do worry about, but that's kind of where you're gonna need the leadership part of this. And you're gonna to have to have um you're gonna to have to have people kind of sit back and say, okay, you know, there there are instances. Bill Greenwald's done a lot of work on this in particular. Um, you know, we, we should be working with some of our allies. We can't do it all on our own. And there are gonna be instances where you're just gonna to have to make that choice that someone else has a better product. Why are we reinventing the mousetrap? We should be spending our money elsewhere in, in a place and, and um, take advantage of what our allies and friends have done.
0: And very quickly before we go, uh, it's summertime. Folks are going to be doing a lot of reading. Uh, you have finished Operation Pedestal, obviously, the um, uh, British uh, and German efforts over over Malta, uh, the aircraft carrier of the Mediterranean. Uh, walk us through some other books that our audience should be considering buying and and reading and why.
1: Yeah. I would give the Italians uh, a lot of credit in pedestal as well too, but Mars adapting by Frank Hoffman. Uh, that's, that's a a very good look at kind of change in military organization. Um, maybe in a little lighter side, um, I haven't read it yet, but I'm, I'm intrigued to finish uh, the bomber mafia by Malcolm, uh, Gladwell, uh, I've got, uh, the power of creative destruction, economic upheaval and the wealth of nations. That's another book that just came out, but it's really about innovation and how economies change. And on a lighter note, uh, because I'm itching to travel, I think like most of us, I did pick a, a copy of Anthony Bourdain, uh, his world travel and a reverent guide. Unfortunately, he passed away. I believe it was two years ago, but, uh. I, I still enjoy his perspective on the world and uh, particularly a perspective through uh, different cuisines.
0: Exactly. And I should point out to the audience, you're a very, very accomplished chef uh, in your own right, as as well as a man who knows his way around a nice bottle of wine. Uh, so uh, Byron, thanks very much. I uh, hope you uh, and uh, the family have a great uh, 4th of July weekend and look forward to having you back on after our little break. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. A pleasure, Vaga. Thank you.